The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The scripture text for this morning's sermon is Luke 3, verses 1 through 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iterea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother Herod's wife, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him 
in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. This Sunday morning we begin a series through the Gospel of Luke. If you just look back to Luke chapter 1 verse 1, you can see a statement of Luke's methods and purpose in writing the book. Luke 1 1. Inasmuch as I have, excuse me, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So who begins explaining that he's been gathering and compiling information about Jesus from eyewitnesses and and ministers of the word, servants of the word, in order to put together this orderly account of the life and teachings of Jesus. And he says, he does so, so that Theophilus, we don't know much, we don't know hardly anything about who this Theophilus is, but he probably is a man of means and he's a believer. He does this so that Theophilus and all who would subsequently read this book verse 4 may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught so as we begin this study of the gospel of Luke let's pray that God would give us certainty considering uh, considering the things we've been taught that God would open our eyes to, to see and know Jesus all the more for who he really is in in all his glory and and in all the truth of who he is and and that uh, and pray that seeing Jesus would have the due rightful spiritual effects in our hearts and in our heads and in our lives that we would trust Jesus more and treasure him more and love him more, and delight in him all the more. So let's pray as we begin this series. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the spirit-inspired authors who wrote as you directed. Thank you for Luke and his careful historical bent to nail these things down for us. For the benefit of our faith. And so we pray for that purpose to be accomplished in us. That we may have certainty considering the things we've been taught. Ground our faith in the facts of Jesus, we pray. And of your word, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now the first two chapters of Luke serve as a kind of a prologue recording the events surrounding the miraculous births of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And I'll tell you what my thinking is in jumping into chapter 3. My plan is to preach on chapters 1 and 2 in November and December of this year, leading into 
this year's Advent season and climb into this. I'll tell you why. Because if I started Luke 1 now, right at Easter, Jesus would be born. And so I thought, well, okay. <laughs> so it was a judgment call. And uh, I actually look forward to probably, I don't know, maybe eight sermons on Luke 1 and 2. It'll be beyond our typical four-week Advent to look into the miraculous births of John the Baptist and Jesus. So that's the plan. So today our text in in chapter 3 begins with this brief overview of the public ministry of John the Baptist. And it's interesting that Luke does not go into the detail that the other gospel writers do. And I I get the sense he he wants to get John the Baptist kind of out of the way so we can focus on Jesus. I mean, there's more to say. There's more. In, in, look at in the Gospel of John or in the Gospel of Matthew or Mark. There's more to say about John the Baptist, but, but Luke kind of gets right through John the Baptist to Jesus. Right to the threshold of Jesus' public ministry is where we will end this morning. So our text is verse 1 to 22 of chapter 3, and I've divided it into four points. See if this is helpful. Point number one, John's commission. Point number two, John's mission. This is where his mission begins and unfolds. And then point number three, John's message. And then point number four, the best I could come up with is John's mission again. You think, okay, I thought that was point number two. But you have to like take a stamp and go accomplish. Boom, on it. So point number four is... John's mission, boom, accomplished. So point number one, John's commission. Luke begins by dating the events of this book in reference to the authorities who ruled during the time and uh, these events took place, the ministry of John the Baptist and the, the ministry of Jesus. And he starts right off with the Roman emperor, <laughs> Caesar, Uh, Tiberius Caesar, verse 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. You you know what he's doing, you know. It's like he he, he cites the emperor because everybody knows kind of when he ruled. So he says, well, we're going to date this in in his 15th year, which puts it at about A.D. 28 or 29 if you put the pieces of history together. It's like saying, you know, this happened during the presidency of of uh, George W. or the presidency of, of Barack Obama. And everybody kind of has a time slot for that. And, and in Bethlehem lingo, in culture, it used to be, you know, I've been here since uh, Romans chapter 1. <laughs> or Acts chapter 2. <laughs> I mean, it's like common dating. Everybody can go, kind of sync up to. So that's what he's doing. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which... Like I say, when the history pieces come together, it's about A.D. 28 or 29. And then Luke adds other names of other public figures anchoring these events all the more and introducing us to some of the key figures who will figure prominently later on in the gospel. It's in the reign of Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. And we know that he will, he will face Jesus. He will... Jesus will stand before him for trial and Pilate will hand Jesus over to be crucified. It happened during the 
reign of Herod Antipas. Herod is one of the sons of Herod the Great who saw to it that the baby boys, two years old and under, were murdered. This is the son of Herod the Great. This Herod is the Herod who will behead John the Baptist and mock Jesus and hand him over to Pilate to be crucified. He also mentions Annas and Caiaphas, Annas and Caiaphas as the high priests. There could only be one high priest at a time in Israel. So, so people say, what in the world is he doing here? Well, similar to what we do with former presidents, we call them Mr. President. So Annas is the, is the old high priest who was replaced by his son-in-law, the new high priest, Caiaphas. And yet, Luke refers to them both as the high priest. And, and actually, you get the sense when you see the trial of Jesus that Annas is no passive, retired high priest. He's involved in conspiring with Caiaphas to see to it that Jesus is put to death. So, there you have the historical dating. And then, it's at this time, Luke says in verse 2, that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So it's not merely historical dating that Luke has in mind. If you look at the, at the first few verses of the prophetic books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Micah and, and Zephaniah and Haggai and Zechariah, <laughs> you will see that their commission to their respective prophetic ministries is recorded as coming like this at a particular time, usually dated by the ruling of a king. And then there's a statement to this effect. At this time, the word of the Lord came to. I'll give you two illustrations of it. You can look them up yourself. They all happen in the first couple of verses of these, these prophetic books that I mentioned. Here's Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest. Here's another one, Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, the king, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Do you see the pattern? So Luke isn't just giving us historical dating. He is making sure that we see that John the Baptist is a prophet, right in line with the prophets of the Old Testament. He's a prophet. God spoke to him at a particular time in history and gave him a mission and gave him a message. In fact, even like Elijah, God spoke to him in the wilderness. And John came out of the wilderness to begin his mission. So that's the commission. Point number two, John's mission. Now, as a herald would go before a king's procession into the city, announcing the king's arrival. So John is to prepare the way for the Lord. Now this was foretold by the prophets. 
Verse 4 quotes from Isaiah 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And then, so there's his mission. And then, and then uh, what follows is these geographic descriptions. And you think, well, how does that go with prepare the way of the Lord and then valleys and mountains? Here's, here's how I take it. Uh, I take the graphic, or excuse me, the geographic illustrations or illusions as metaphors to, to the effect of, of the coming of the Lord on, on the people prepared to receive him. In other words, the lowly, the valleys, will be filled. The high and the mighty, the mountains, will be made low. Actually, the word literally is, the mountains will be humbled. The crooked will be made straight. And the rough shall become level ways. Verse 5, every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. So this is the effect of, of the coming of the Lord and John's preparing work that people will be hopeful. They will be humbled. They will be repentant people. And they will see the coming of the Lord. It's his mission to prepare the way for the public ministry and the salvation of the Messiah the Christ. Point number three. John's message. This one's the longest of the three, of the four points. I tried to pull out three of John's main messages and group his message this way. Three main points. First, repent and be baptized. Second, bear the fruits of repentance. And third, the Christ is greater than I. Let me just do those one at a time. John's message now, repent and be baptized. Verse 3. John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, So he's in all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew's account adds that crowds came to him from Jerusalem. This is uh, Matthew 3, 5. From, quote, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan. These crowds were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, what made John's baptism so unusual and even offensive to Jewish people was in Judaism, baptism was for the Gentiles. They were the unclean ones. They were the sinners. And so when Gentiles wanted to convert to Judaism, they had to undergo baptism. So you see what's offensive about John's message speaking to Largely Jewish crowds from Jerusalem, Judea, all around the Jordan. 
He's saying to the Jewish people, it's not only the Gentiles who are unclean sinners. It's you too. It's you too. They needed to be cleansed. They needed to undergo the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's his first message. Repent and be baptized. Second message, bear fruits of repentance. (laughs) Now, John John is not an illustration of of seeker-friendly preaching, maybe. (laughs) I don't know how it hit you, but you know, he begins with, you, voo- you brood of vipers. And Matthew introduces this with, I mean, in Luke, the crowds are there. He begins, you brood of vipers. Matthew says, by the way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up in the crowd, and he begins, you brood of vipers. So you can put them together. John is speaking to everybody, including the scribes and the Pharisees with their religiosity. And John the Baptist has the same issue with the Pharisees that Jesus has. They're all about pretense. pretense. They're, they're hypocritical. They put burdens, religious burdens, on people that they themselves don't bear, and they, they posture for repentance when it's not really there. So, John begins, verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. <laughs> it's like, you, you, you religious fakes, you're like poisonous snakes. Who, who warned you to flee from the coming of the Lord to escape his judgment. Fake repentance toward God that doesn't yield the fruit of righteousness and love is spiritually poisonous. It's deadly. So John's challenge is if your repentance is real, it will bear real fruit. It goes on. Verse 8 kind of, what, you know, pulling the covers off of any sense of self-righteousness that, that these people would have due to their religious or ethnic heritage. Like, like, I'm Jewish. I'm of the old covenant. I'm right with God. I don't need forgiveness. He just kind of pulls that cover away. Verse 8, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. (laughs) Your ethnicity, your religious heritage is nothing. God can raise up children of Abraham from rocks as he moves in with the power of the Spirit and faith in Christ. The coming of the Lord and his judgment is very near. So he calls them to bear fruit. Look, here's the warning. Verse 9. It's an image again. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. (laughs) So the axe is ready to bring down the sinful and unfruitful trees in God's judgment. It's God's axe. It's a wake-up call. The Lord is coming. And unless you repent, you will perish. Yes, you, even the Pharisees, even you people of the Old Covenant, you'll find yourself condemned and destined to be thrown into the fire, verse 9. I mean, this axe to the tree reminds me, I've got to do this really quickly. <laughs> I cut down a big oak tree once. I'm not a professional, and this is one of those, the, the screen should be showing, don't do this at home, don't do this at home, don't do this at home. I went on YouTube and, and studied a Husqvarna chainsaw company, <coughs> how to cut down a tree. This was not a small oak tree. Uh, And uh, it had this really cool method. So here's the trunk of the tree. You put a notch in this side. And then what you do is take the point of the the chainsaw and you go right in the middle. And you leave a little gap on both sides. A little gap on this side and get close to that notch but leave a hinge for the tree to hang on and fall. And then this is the image I get. The axe, what is it? The axe is, is laid to the root of the tree. It's right here. It's right, it's just about to fall. The axe is here. Here's the image. Show that when it's time to cut down the tree, this is this is the time in this in this text. You start up the chainsaw and you just touch this side. <laughs> ready. It's ready to come down. Jesus, Jesus is ready to come. The salvation and judgment. And John wants the people to wake up to this reality and shaken to the core, the people say, what shall we do? Verse 10, what shall we do? And John's answer it's basically something like this. Like, if, if your repentance towards God is real on the inside, it's invisible, right? But it, if it's real, it will show on the outside with love and righteousness and goodness to other people. Isn't that interesting? I repent toward God. You can't see that. So John's angle is, well, that's true. The fruit of that repentance will be love and righteousness and good to other people. Here it is. To those who were materially comfortable with their earthly goods, John told them, verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. A tunic is like a t-shirt. You know, like if it's cold, you might put two on. And if you have two of those and your brother is cold, give him your tunic. Likewise with food. And to the tax collectors, who, I mean, very likely Jewish people working for the Romans, overcharging taxpayers so that they could get more money for themselves, 
That's why they were hated. He says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. That's what repentance would look like. It's interesting, he doesn't tell them, quit your job, quit working. He says, no, you can keep your job, just do right in it. And to the soldiers, also probably predominantly Jewish soldiers working for the Romans who are occupying Israel, who abuse their power to extort money from people. He says, well, to the soldiers, repentance looks like this, verse 14. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. And be content with your wages. Now, the form of repentance looks different in each case, but the essence is the same. Receiving the Messiah will necessitate leaving behind your long entrenched and perhaps loved patterns of sin. This is heavy. And it could be that one of the main takeaways of this message is that that God, through this text, is putting his finger on some sinful practice, some sinful foothold, some idol that's got a hold of your heart. And God's working right now to say, repent of that, let go of that. It's keeping you from Jesus. It's It's hindering your relationship with Jesus. And you love it more than Jesus, you'll find yourself in the fire. (laughs) The text says this is good news. You know, there used to be a joke, you know. Hey, let me tell you the good news. You're going to hell. It's like, oh. But listen, just my story just my story. You may have heard me talk about this. This is just my story. I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church every Sunday. I grew up wearing a little tie, a little clip-on, you know, from the time I was like third grade on. I loved to run to church and watch my tie flow in the wind. Um, My mother taught first grade for 50 years, which I probably don't recommend. You probably should go to an adult Sunday school class at some time. Um, my dad served in various ways, finally as an elder in the church. The, the church building I went to is where Greater Friendship is in South Minneapolis right now, though it was a different church at that time. Two incidents stand out to me in, that God used to draw me to himself. Both line up with a sense of condemnation. As I remember it, I I might get these dates a little, they're squishy. Sixth grade, seventh, eighth grade, it's all, they all happen in there. As I remember it, I was in about sixth grade when I came across a simple tract that in summary communicated the promises of the gospel of Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. And I brought it home and I showed it to my mother. I said, Mom, Mom, look, here's a gospel of the, here's a tract of the gospel of Christ. And you know what she said to me? She said, We're all Christians here. And you know what happened to me? I'm not. You might think I am. I'm not. 
We're not born again by family heritage. A short time after, within a year or two, I don't know, maybe two years, my Sunday school teacher asked us, it was all boys, I think, um, asked us, whatever, seventh grade boys, to put our heads on the table, we're sitting at that table, and uh, raise our hand if, raise our hands if we had believed in Jesus and received him as our Lord and Savior. So imagine the, the seventh grade boys, heads down. He says, raise your hand if you've received Jesus. I don't know. I don't know if I raised my hand out of peer pressure or not, but whether I did or didn't, I knew. I knew I wasn't right with God. I knew I had not trusted in Jesus. I knew. In a sense, a deep conviction of sin landed on me. In a sense that I was a sinner far from Christ. Now, in both instances, I look back and I see that was God's hand. That was God's hand drawing me to himself. It was the conviction of the Spirit convicting me of my sin and sinfulness. <laughs> Without seeing my sinfulness, I, I, I didn't know I needed to look to God for forgiveness in Christ. But I did. God showed me and he revealed Christ to me a few years later and I received Christ and I believed and was saved. So this is gospel. This is gospel. To hear of the coming of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the salvation of God, this is good news. The, the third message that John brings is this. Christ is greater than I am. <laughs> he's just really clear. Uh, he's, you know, the, the Jews were expecting the Messiah to come. And it was only natural for them to wonder if John was the Messiah or Elijah the prophet. And John's answer is really clear. I'm not the Christ. And he makes three distinctions between himself and Christ. Number one, Christ is superior to me. He's mightier than I, verse 16. He, he is exalted and more powerful than I. I'm unworthy to be lower than his slave, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In reading the commentaries, they say that th there's one job that you wouldn't even give a slave to do. Untie your sandals. So John is saying, uh, I'm not even worthy to do that for Christ the Messiah. Christ is greater than I. He's superior. He's coming after me so I can't be him. <laughs> I'm preparing the way for him. He also says, Christ will baptize you not merely with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, what does that mean? 
Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, seems best lined up with Christ's own words in Acts 1-5, where Jesus says prior to Pentecost, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Coming upon all who have received Christ, all who believe, enabling our faith and drawing us to Christ. He's sealing us. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, I get that. But what about fire? You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does fire mean? Is it positive? Is it like referring to the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in us? Because fire is sometimes used as a purifying image. Or is it negative? Referring to God's judgment. And I'll tell you, because of context, because of fire in verse 9, I think the text, this fire, baptism of fire, refers to divine judgment. So how does that work? So those who believe, as the image will suggest in verse 17, are like the wheat of the harvest that when shaken out, they're gathered in. Those receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and those apart from Christ, like the chaff, will receive the baptism of the fires of judgment. I say this because of verse 17 and the earlier mention of fire in verse 9. Here's 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John has a clear view that the Messiah will come to seek and to save his people and he will come having been given all the authority of God to judge people. And to some, we will experience salvation, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and some, the fires of judgment. The righteous will go into eternal life and the wicked into eternal punishment. Verse 18 So with many other exhortations, he, John, preached the good news to the people. Fourth point, John's mission accomplished. John's mission accomplished. John is arrested, verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So Herod arrests John because John called out Herod and Herodias, saying, "Uh, Herod, it's wrong for you to take your brother's wife as your own. You know what I think? I heard a whole sermon that, that it was turned into got to speak truth to power on this. And I thought, well, that might be an inference. But 
the point here, I think? John's just doing to Herod what he's doing to everybody else. There's nothing special about Herod. I mean, Jesus has come for everybody, even the king, even the proud king. Herod, repent and be baptized. Receive the forgiveness of your sins, the the Messiah's coming. Receive him. And it lands John in jail. And as we know, we'll see it later in Luke, that Herod has John the Baptist beheaded. So John's mission is done. But not before John had baptized Jesus. It's the very end of our passage, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's interesting that Luke doesn't spend a lot of time on the baptism of Jesus like the other gospel writers but he really underscores the moment in these two verses of who Jesus is. Jesus is baptized, right? He's baptized and think, why does Jesus need to be baptized? He's sinless. I mean, sinless from birth. We know that from Luke 1. Jesus was asked that question by John and Matthew tells us his answer. Jesus said, Well, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus is baptized by John. Here's how I think of it. I think of it. To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' righteousness that becomes ours by our substitutionary union with him includes his righteousness even in obeying the word of God through John the Baptist. All of Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. All of his righteousness is ours. We have kept all the law of God because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Through him is our righteousness. And you know the transaction The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all when he dies for our sins. So Jesus was baptized, fulfilling the righteousness of God. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus in fulfillment of Isaiah 42. Behold, this is God speaking. Look, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. Jesus was baptized. As he was praying, the Holy Spirit came upon him visibly. It's, it's not as a dove. It's, I mean, it's not a dove. It's kind of like a dove. It's visible. Coming down on him. He's anointing with the Spirit. And then, and then God speaks. Verse 22. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you 
I am well pleased. And with that, Luke takes us right up to the threshold of the public ministry of Jesus about to begin. John had prepared the way for Jesus. His mission is accomplished. Luke wants us to know that the promised Messiah had finally come. God had confirmed him by the Spirit descending on him, by the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. (laughs) Uh, my, My wife read my manuscript yesterday and she said, this is awesome. The, the Son of God is here. Do you see him? That's, that's, where, that's where Luke wants us. The Son of God has come. The Messiah has come. Ours is to see him. Ours is to repent of our sin. Ours is to receive him and trust him and love him and treasure him and find in him our joy and life and salvation now and forevermore. Next week, Brian Tabb, academic dean of Bethlehem College and Seminary, will preach the next passage in which Luke wants us to see Jesus in light of his genealogy. Now, if that doesn't sound exciting to you, let me help you. It's a genealogy. I, I'm good. My wife and I are going to go on vacation. We've been gone, but we've been working while we've been gone. Now we're going to just take a week off. And um, I had a professor in seminary, Dan Block. And Dan Block, I remember in his classes, we'd hit these genealogies and he'd say, if you understand the genealogies, they will preach like mad. <laughs> so we'll, we'll pray, for, pray for Brian as he brings us the genealogy of Jesus in the next section. Father in heaven, open our eyes to see and know Jesus all the more. This is the first coming. Jesus has come in all his glory and truth. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see in true repentance and grant that we would worship in spirit and in truth and treasure Christ all for the glory of your name and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 720- 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.